Thank you, Jake, and well done filling the shoes of the great Alan Jones. I'm Fred Paul, and you're watching ADH TV, the new home for common sense commentary in Australia. I've got another cracking show for you tonight. In a minute, I'll explain why everything that's going wrong in Australia can be traced back to our deplorable education system. The encroachment of historical revisionism and identity politics has happened slowly, but began in earnest in 2008. Since then, it has churned out year after year of brainwashed kids, and many of them are now in positions of power themselves. Then I'll chat with John Roskam of the Institute of Public Affairs about Zoe Bueller, the pregnant mother who was arrested and handcuffed in her pajamas two years ago for posting on Facebook. I'll also chat with Alexandra Marshall about the dark side of digital identities. And Woguewatch will have a look at French men cooking barbecues. Could they be as virile as French women say they are? Stay tuned and find out. Now let's get into it. Well, it's often said that politics is downstream from culture, by which it's meant that to win political battles, you must also be winning the broader culture wars. But how do you do that? Before it became a bloodied battlefield of new ideas, culture was determined mostly by two reasonably sound traditions, Christianity and patriotism. Not that these were ever overt or domineering influences, at least not in a post-Enlightenment country like Australia. They were simply background ideas that helped mould all of us into individuals. But Christianity and patriotism have lost their cachet in this materialistic, globalised world, and their demise has created a vacuum into which a far more pernicious force has stepped in. That force is politely called education. But it's nothing of a kind. Our education system, from kindergarten through to university, is and has been for decades a factory producing almost nothing but brainwashed leftists. Unlike the broader, more individualistic doctrines it replaces, the modern education system does not tolerate dissent, let alone debate. Ask any recent student who has managed to survive the process with even a skerrick of traditional centre-right ideas intact, and they'll tell you that graduating from school or university requires adopting leftist tropes about the evils of Western civilization, the wonders of indigenous culture, and the inevitable destruction of our planet through overpopulation. If the system encourages creativity at all, it's to find new and more ridiculous evidence of our evil history, or to find previously unknown identity groups upon whom the wider culture must bestow victimhood, which teachers these days say is the only type of social recognition worth coveting. It's not an overstatement to say that this system of indoctrination spells suicide for our culture and civilization. It begins with the most banal truism of modern politics, that money solves everything. The budget brought down by former, former Treasurer Josh Frydenberg in March this year said, quote, a world-class education sector is essential to unlocking our economic potential and that, quote, 
Record funding in schools would ensure that all students are equipped with the necessary skills as part of our plan for a stronger future, unquote. A stronger future? You're kidding. All the budget did was throw money at a system that has been failing for decades. According to the Program for International Student Assessment, the ability of the average 15-year-old Australian kid to read has been declining since 2000, to do maths since 2003, and to understand science since 2012. On the other hand, Australian kids' understanding of the evils of Western colonialism and intersectional victimhood are world-class, so there's that. Frydenberg's record expenditure didn't come with any performance requirements. It simply accepted that the school system was doing a great job and deserves billions more of your cash. Governments started meddling in education, as distinct from simply funding it for the benefit of the nation's families, in 2008, when every state education minister in the country and the then Federal Minister Julia Gillard signed the Melbourne Declaration of Educational Goals for Young Australians. This declaration said, quote, schools play a vital role in promoting the intellectual, physical, social, emotional, moral, spiritual, and aesthetic development of young Australians, unquote. Oh, do they now? Do you remember voting for a political party that was offering to become an emotional, moral and spiritual mentor for your kids? Because that's what we've had since 2008. Even the Melbourne Declaration acknowledged that this was new territory for the government, saying its declaration had, quote, a broader frame than previous educational policies. You can say that again. In 2011, by which time Bill Gillard had become Prime Minister, the National Curriculum, an idea that had been kicking around since the 1980s, was finally introduced. The curriculum is not forced on the states. Queensland, Tasmania, South Australia and the two territories adopted, holus bolus, while Victoria, New South Wales and Western Australia have more or less cut and pasted it with minor modifications. There are three cross-cultural ideas in the cross-curriculum ideas, I should say, in the national curriculum. They are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island histories and cultures, Asia and Australia's engagement with Asia, and, of course, sustainability. Despite Indigenous culture contributing very little to the sum total of scientific knowledge, it is still embedded into the science curriculum. The, the curriculum explains, quote, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples have worked scientifically for millennia and continue to contribute to contemporary science. They are scientifically rigorous, demonstrating how Indigenous culture history, knowledge and understanding can be incorporated into teaching core scientific concepts." Unquote. You might have noticed the word they in there. The curriculum considers 
our indigenous brothers and sisters to be different to us and worthy of special, some might say exaggerated, inclusion in classroom content. This is a profound departure from the traditional Western concept that all people are equal regardless of their skin color and genetic makeup. And it is from this that we used to derive the idea that character is destiny. That's not only a quaint notion these days, it's anathema to what we're teaching our kids. Not even the arts are immune to this woke indoctrination. Quote, students use the exploratory platform of the arts to advocate effective action for, can you guess? Sustainability, unquote. Of course they do. And after they've explored the platform to tell us how we are all, all destroying the planet, they will be qualified to do little more than shove Big Macs through a drive through window at a tradie in a Hilux on his way to a building site. Although for a lucky few who go on to receive even more indoctrination at university, a career running a major corporation or government bureaucracy beckons. Joseph Stalin once said that, quote, education is a weapon whose effect depends on who holds it in his hands and at whom it is aimed, unquote. He forgot to mention it's not a weapon for people like you and me. We're just the mugs who pay for it. Well, Australian blokes are being vilified again for standing around a barbecue talking about football and frying up chunks of prime beef and lamb. Oh wait, it's not Aussie men, it's French ones. You know, things are getting bad when even men who wear pink shirts and think physical labor should be subcontracted out to North African immigrants get accused of being too masculine. French Green pol politician Sandrine Rousseau told a parliamentary panel on the weekend, quote, we must change mentalities so that eating an entrecote, otherwise known as Scotch fillet, cooked on a barbecue is no longer seen as a symbol of virility, unquote. Well, barbecued entrecote is positively effete compared to the way the great Australian diplomat Sir Les Patterson ordered his cuts of beef at even the most exclusive restaurants back in the day, which was, and I quote, cut off its horns, wipe its ass, and bung it on a plate, unquote. Compared to that, a scotch fillet with a side order of snails sounds almost vegan. Nevertheless, French men took a break from standing around on street corners smoking cigarettes to express their indignation over this crazy woman's plea for them to be more feminine. Right-wing MP Eric Chiotti said it was the height of grotesque and appealed for the madness to stop. Well, the madness is stopping all right, but not in France. American TV network CNN has been laying off some of its most famous woke presenters lately, including John Harwood, Brian Stelter and Chris Cuomo, in a last minute bid to stop viewers leaving in droves. It wasn't long ago that those big names seemed inextricable from CNN, but now they're gone. The Daily Wire quoted an unnamed CNN staffer saying, quote, people are freaked out. It almost feels like a pattern. Is there a purge going on? They seem to be sending out a message. 
Watch what you say. Watch what you do, unquote. Oh, you mean like leftists have been telling anybody to the right of Karl Marx to watch what they say, otherwise they will be purged by mobs of, mobs of angry woke Twitter users? So leftists are now being cancelled by their employer for what they say and do? Heaven forbid! Unlike leftists, though, we don't wish cancellation on the people who we think have espoused deluded, idiotic ideas. As the great conservative American commentator Larry Elder says, they think we're evil, we just think they're wrong. And the reason they're wrong is mostly thanks to the indoctrination they received at school, followed by a career in a giant corporate safe space like CNN, or dare I say it, Australia's own ABC. Delusions sprout in such places like mushrooms in a paddock full of cow dung. For some people, being fired from CNN or the ABC could be the best thing that ever happened to them. Zoe Bueller was arrested in her home in Ballarat, Victoria, while wearing her pyjamas in September 2020. Despite being pregnant, she was handcuffed and charged with incitement. Her actual crime was to help organise a protest against the state's harsh COVID lockdowns. The Premier, Dan Andrews, said without remorse at the time, quote, The key point here is now is not the time to protest about anything because to do so is not safe, unquote. We now know that Andrews was incorrect. COVID was neither as dangerous nor infectious as Andrews believed it was, and the lockdowns in Victoria, some of the harshest in the world, actually achieved mostly nothing. Bueller was pushing back against an authoritarian regime because she, like many Victorians, understood that basic freedoms should not be so arbitrarily removed. The various branches of the Victorian government did little to dispel the suspicion that the basic freedoms of the state's citizens were under threat. The Victorian Equal Opportunity and Human Rights Commission published a laughable excuse for the government's actions, saying that the previous protests by Black Lives Matter in Melbourne had been perfectly fine because the tens of thousands of shrieking leftists who attended that event had been asked to socially distance. That they didn't mattered naught to the Human Rights Commission. Leftist protesters have rights, you know. But Zoe Bueller, Zoe, Bueller, Zoe Bueller didn't. If people like her wanted to protest during the lockdown, they could do so in ways that, quote, do not violate the public health orders and respect the human rights of other Victorians, unquote. These other forms of protests included, quote, signing a petition, contacting your local MP, and gathering online to discuss your concerns." Unquote. So as far as the Victorian Human Rights Commission is concerned, the rights of people not to be infected by a virus with a 99% survival rate is more important than the right to free speech and association. Somehow, I don't think the Commission understands what human rights actually are. Luckily for Bueller, the Institute of Public Affairs, a conservative think tank in Melbourne, helped raise $70,000 for her defence and hired good quality lawyers. 
Last week, two years after being handcuffed in her pajamas, Bueller's charges were finally dropped. I'm pleased to say that the former managing director of the IPA, John Roscombe, who led the campaign to help Bueller, is with me tonight. John, welcome to the show. Great to be with you, Fred. John, would these charges have been dropped if you hadn't lined up a formidable legal team to defend Zoe against those charges? We don't know, Fred, but I think that is a fair assumption. Um, what's happening down here in Melbourne at the moment is that a whole series of charges are being dropped as those who are charged are starting to push back against these outrageous prosecutions and against exactly, as you said in your introduction, uh, the authoritarianism of the Victorian government. Exactly as you said, Zoe Bueller was charged two years ago. Uh, she found out a week ago that the charge of incitement would be dropped. No explanation, no apology, no reasons given. Uh, this is a frightening state of affairs. And one of the things that shocks so many Victorians is that there is no demand for an explanation. There is no demand for the police to say why three months out from a state election have these charges been dropped? Nothing. And from the very beginning of when Zoe was arrested, exactly as you say, in her living room, in her pajamas, while pregnant, in front of her children for a Facebook post, we still are no wiser about why this has happened. Were you there on the day when the charges were dropped in Ballarat? Yes, I was with Zoe in the Ballarat Magistrates Court uh, Tuesday last week, uh, and it was a five-minute hearing. Zoe is now uh, making, or Zoe's lawyers are now making an application for the costs of the case, the legal costs, uh, but nothing will repay the mental anguish, the stress, the turmoil of these two years. And one of the points is that uh, Zoe had the presence of mind to turn on the video when there was a knock at the door and there were five or six or seven people dressed in black at her door who demanded to be let in. Zoe didn't know who these people were, why they were there, which is, of course, why she turned on the video camera in the first place. But this has happened to dozens and dozens of Victorians and there is still no reckoning for what has occurred. Well, Zoe's the one we know about the best. What effect did those two years have on her? Well, there was the mental anguish. As we know, she was pregnant. Uh, her job applications uh, were put on hold. There was the sword of Damocles hanging over her head. The police confiscated her phones, uh, her uh, means of communications. There were limits on her travel. Uh, the police dragged out the process. No Australian should have a criminal charge over their head for two years like this. Now, COVID... Uh, did delay the hearings for some months. But there's no reason why this needed to take two years. And we can only suspect and we have ideas as to why the prosecution might have been dropped. One of the comments has been made publicly that this was because we have a state election 
and no one wants to be reminded of what happened to Victorians and indeed all Australians. Another reason may well be that Zoe's legal team was very prepared to challenge the legality of all of these health orders. And when they were challenged, and th as they would have been in court, I think we would have found that a lot of them were based on very flimsy legal principles and the police did not want to withstand the scrutiny of any lawyer asking how did we go through this and why did we go through this? Well, throughout the lockdown, the police often made the mistake of looking like they were the private army for Dan Andrews' government. And now you're suggesting that the, that the police don't want the bad PR from this case to affect the forthcoming election. It's a fairly close relationship, intimate relationship between government and police, isn't it, John? Well, exactly as you said, Fred, we don't know why, but we can only look at what appears on the surface. You referred to the Black Lives Matter protest. The uh, police and the IPA has written about this. The police seem to be supporting some political causes and not others. The police seem to be playing politics. Uh, as you said, uh, some people have called the Victoria Police a once respected and trusted institution, uh, the private army of Dan Andrews and worse, not my words, the words of others. Uh, and this is by no means a healthy state of affairs. Now, in a liberal democracy, you would think a police prosecution and its timing has nothing to do with a state election. It should have nothing to do with politics. But in the absence of any explanation of what has happened and why Victorians are liable to draw their own conclusions. Are you hearing of other charges being dropped or is it just the high profile ones that are likely to affect the outcome of the election? Well, we don't know, Fred. There's been certainly some high profile charges had, that have been dropped. And again, when a case is dropped, uh, there's no testing of the legality. The IPA and many others are trying to find out how many Victorians have been charged, what is the progress of their cases. There has been a complete lack of information about this. There's been a complete lack of media scrutiny or public curiosity about this. And as a number of people have said, uh, Zoe fought her charges. Uh, others have fought their charges. What about the people who paid up? What about the people who've paid the fines, uh, who have succumbed to the prosecutions, but may well have had a case that was arguable in the magistrate's court here in Victoria? So what's the mood in the electorate, John? Are, are Victorians relieved that all these lockdowns are over and just want to put it in the past? Or are they uh, sitting on their porches with baseball bats, as the saying goes? Well, I wish it was the latter, Fred. And as you and I have spoken about over these last two years, and as you know very well, because you've been very brave speaking up for Australia's freedoms, and you've been very brave speaking up against the tyrannical overreach of federal and state governments, um, Sadly, it seems the Andrews government will be re-elected. That's what the polls are saying. That's what the surveys are indicating. Um, it's been a very interesting phenomena here in Victoria, whereby so many Victorians want to put what has happened behind them. One of the things that shocked me 
was that when Zoe was arrested and handcuffed, as you said, in her living room in front of her children, when she said she would take down the Facebook post, there was absolutely no reason for her to be treated like this. Um, sadly, the overwhelming reaction to Victoria of Victorians was she deserved it. She got what was coming to her. Victorians have been humiliated. They have been threatened. They have been intimidated um, by a government ruling by fear. Um, and no one spoke up for, for Zoe. The, as you said, kindly, Fred, the Institute of Public Affairs was able to support her. Our friends at Liberty Works set up a funding page to pay for her legal fees. Um, the Victorian opposition didn't speak up. Scott Morrison uh, was silent. Uh, the media was silent. Too many people have been complicit and have collaborated with uh, what I would argue is the most significant public policy failure in peacetime since 1901 in Australia's history. I, I couldn't agree more. It, the, the, the disruption it caused to Australian society and the economy is unprecedented. The next phase of this, John, as you know, is that, is, as Anthony Albanese has said, will be a royal commission. Do you think it'll find anything? No, I'm one of these people who's completely sceptical about a royal commission. Uh, we had an ombudsman's report here in Victoria that uh, studied Again, one of the great scandals, well, there have been so many scandals in Victoria and Australia over, the least, over these last two years, of the lockdown of um, some public housing uh, units and tenants in, in Melbourne. Um, they were locked down with no notice, uh, with no warning. Um, the ombudsman put out a scathing report. It was basically ignored. Uh, there have been a number of inquiries. There have been ignored. They've been whitewashers. Uh, there's no indication that any judge that would be appointed or judges uh, would have uh, the moral fortitude, the bravery to ask the hard questions ranging all the way from what was Scott Morrison doing secretly giving himself these powers and uh, swearing, swearing himself into these portfolios. Uh, all the way to Dan Andrews uh, changing rules willy-nilly, locking us down to what happened uh, as Australia's borders were shut. Um, it would need a remarkable set of brave individuals to speak the truth. Um, the truth is coming out in the UK. The truth is coming out in Britain, in, in the US. Uh, it was For me, it was fascinating that Rishi Sunak, who as we now know, was defeated um, for the Tory leadership, thought it worthwhile to say he spoke out against the lockdown. So I am one of these people who's completely sceptical that any royal commission uh, will come anywhere to uncovering uh, the truth. Um, the truth and an honest reckoning, I think, Fred, is still years away. But the truth will come out one day, John, Royal Commission or not. John, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Fred. That's the former Executive Director of the IPA, John Roskam. 
The great Australian film The Castle from 1997 has probably one of the highest counts of one-liners to enter the vernacular of any Aussie film in history. Tell him he's dreaming, this is going straight to the pool room, how's the serenity and it's just the vibe of the thing have all amused us countless times over the years whenever occasions permitted. But there's one line from the film that is now making its way back into currency, so to speak. What is it with wogs and cash? There was a time when the obsessive use of cash in Australia was restricted to drug dealers and immigrants with an innate suspicion of government. Well, for obvious reasons, that suspicion of the increasingly nosy government is more commonplace in Australia these days. My next guest has written a piece about this in The Spectator Australia, in which she quotes a German economist describing cash as, quote, printed freedom, and says it will be the social war of this century. She might be right. At a time when governments are pushing to know more and more about us, cash enables us to carry on making commercial exchanges in relative privacy. Not because we're engaging in criminal transactions, but that perfectly ordinary transactions these days are starting to acquire, to coin a phrase, social discredit. This is the kind of discredit some politicians might one day use against us. Of course, big tech already knows more about us than we are comfortable with. There are two reasons for this. Firstly, data is money. According to AOL, a big American company that sells online advertising space, it's worth more than content. Publishers make more from customer data than they do from subscriptions and advertising, so they're particularly determined to get their hands on it. Everyone is. Secondly, governments are not in a rush to regulate these invasions of privacy, partly because they want a piece of the action too. To find out why, let's bring in Alexandra Marshall from The Spectator Australia. Alexandra, welcome. Thank you, it's a pleasure to be here. Firstly, can you explain what you mean by printed freedom? So this line was actually used in annoyance by our little economist friend in Germany because they were trying to increase the power of the state and they were complaining that cash is a form of liberty that gives citizens privacy from the government oversight over their interactions. Now, liberty and cash are fundamental principles of a free market economy because once you no longer have access to cash, a government can control, first of all, whether you have access to uh, money and second of all, how you use that money. So an example I would give people who are trying to understand why liberty and cash are so deeply entwined is in Rome, you had the powerful families who had enough money to buy things like armies and treasuries and they held power against the Roman state. But this is like the Roman state saying, hey, you can have your wealth, but we're going to keep it in the Senate Treasury. And then you can understand why cash on condition is no longer any kind of freedom at all. And that's what's being offered to Australia and the rest of the Western world under this new digital identity system where all of our transactions are meant to be electronic by 2030. And the government has stated explicitly that they want to insert themselves between every transaction in our economy and check whether you're allowed to actually make these transactions. Now that is a big problem for a free society. It sure is. I mean, what, what evidence is there? I mean, can you elaborate on, on, the, uh, on what they've said about getting rid of cash? 
First of all, it comes from the Digital Economy 2030, which is a Liberal Party piece of paper that they wrote, like a document that was tabled with the digital identity. And the idea is that all businesses will become digital businesses by 2030 and that cash will effectively be outlawed. So they're not going to try and pass legislation because that would be massively unpopular. Instead, they're just leaning on businesses to adopt this practice. Now, once that occurs, they want to use the digital identity to how do they put it? So get in between our uh, consumer relations and check us to make sure that our identity is sound, like a really noxious virus protection, except it's the government, not a, not a third party system. And then they want to do things like stop transactions if they're not meant to be happening. So I think some of the World Economic Forum said, imagine if you had a digital vaccine passport that was expired and you were trying to shop at a place where you weren't allowed to be, well, that would just instantly expire your transaction. That's what we're talking about. Well, you say in your piece that cash is not the facilitator of citizen crime. Cash gives citizens protection against the crimes of the state. Now, you're kind of describing what those crimes are. But I mean, when you say crimes of the state, do you mean the state determining what we can do? These are incursions on our freedom. Is that the sort of crime you're talking about? Well, yes, there are two assumptions here. The first is that cash equals crime, and that is wrong. As I said in the piece, I personally dissolved a major credit card scam that was obviously not in cash, but in cards. So the idea that cash is somehow crime is wrong. It's just used as an excuse. What we mean by cash protects us from crimes of the state, it means that if the state starts to infringe upon basic civil liberties or makes laws that are morally and ethically incorrect, well, the free market economy used to sit underneath this and people could make transactions on their own without reference to the state. That is a protection against state control. It's why these European economists who are also socialists absolutely hate the concept of cash and are trying to get rid of it. Now, this also means uh, there was one example I used where they want to start using negative interest rates. And they're complaining because if they do that, people start taking out all their money into cash, obviously, so they don't get charged for being savers. Well, they want to make sure there's no way that they, people can um, circumnavigate the state. Now, this is a big problem for us because it's not just the reality of crime and cash. We have the idea of the government replacing our cash with social credits or carbon credits and attaching ethical decisions from the state to our private purchasing. Come on, Alexandra, would an Australian <laughs> government really do oh. that? <laughs> I mean, the last two years have given us a pretty good introduction of why we should hang on to cash as tightly as possible. And you said in your intro that migrants tended to use more cash than Australians. And that's also true. In Europe today, cash has had a resurgence in the last five years. And that's because Europeans have seen how bad governments can get in the last couple of centuries. And so they rightly don't trust governments with uh, total control of the economy. And Australians need to wise up to how bad government control can be. I mean, they've had plenty of clues in the last two years. You'd hope that they're getting the hint by now. I think you're right. They have been leaving a lot of clues over the past <laughs> two years, haven't they? Now, look, you're critical of the Trusted Digital Identity Framework, which is a very specific uh, federal government uh, initiative. It's the federal government's way to ensure proof of identity across its websites. 
Now, Alexandra, this protects us against fraud and identity theft. So what's wrong with that? Well, the first thing is it doesn't protect anybody against fraud or identity theft. One of the most hacked systems in the world is a government system. So basically we call it a crown jewel scenario where the government, the least protected entity, is now accumulating all your data to make it really, it's like a shopping mall for identity theft. It's not a good idea. But the digital, uh, digital identity is actually a World Economic Forum concept. It was developed at Davos and it's been exported to the Western nations of the world. And even in the Australian version, they've actually copied and pasted all the references from the WEF. So it's not a homegrown idea, it is an international idea and it's supposed to link into a global system. Now what it does is basically means that the state has absolute control and knowledge over every transaction, every part of your life. So it links together your private medical records with all of your consumer data, your social media data and your banking data and it starts to collate this uh, and judge the value of you as an entire person. Uh, the best way to describe it is a precursor to the Chinese social credit system. That is what it is. And so they say it's about convenience and solving technical server issues, but there are lots of ways to solve t server issues without instituting a Chinese social credit system over the state. And as someone who used to be a software designer, I can tell you that you don't need global socialism to fix software problems. It's funny that, you, you know, you describe these systems in this way. I, whenever I use MyGov or any of those things, I, 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 I'm usually beguiled by the impression that it's all very convenient and that the government's doing it for my convenience. But you're saying there's ulterior motives here, aren't you? Well, it's not just that. It changes the relationship between the government and the citizens. So currently, right now, you things like MyGov, there are special privacy protections, which means that although you can see certain things, the different sections of government are actually separated. So the tax office can't see this department and this department can't see that one. They are separated. What the digital identity does is roll back all those privacy protections on the citizen and collates everything so that the government can now see everything in your private, social and digital life. Now that is a fundamental change to the state's behaviour with its citizen. And once it has that knowledge, it can then use it. And don't be surprised if as soon as they know what you're purchasing is, they're going to start to try and manipulate that. And the banks are already all in and the insurance companies are there. They want to start using this government collected data to, you know, charge you more or to deny you bank loans if you're a climate denier or all matter of things. Well, on top of that, they can actually sell the data. Is that correct? Yes, so the digital identity allows third parties to access your previously private government-held data. Now, that has never been done in Australia before. So the government has strict regulations on who can see your data and what they can do with it. And now they can collect whatever they want and interact with third-party systems, some of which are not even in Australia, which used to be prohibited, and uh, on-sell your data. Well, just playing, you know, devil's advocate here, what would be bad about that? I mean, like, so they would sell our data to corporations that are interested in selling us products. So isn't that convenient? <laughs> You've got to be so careful of the lie of convenience and safety because it's not about convenience and safety. It is about control and power. So if you want to find, if you want to answer that question, go and ask a Chinese citizen how convenient it is that they can pay with their phone, but they can't travel or go send their children to school or get a job if they don't smile correctly at all the government cameras. That is the reality of a digital identity future. Well, there's probably no risk that Meghan Markle, <laughs> the Duchess of Sussex, is giving away any useful data about her movements. She caught a train from London to Manchester yesterday. Alexandra, what was that all about? 
you know, it doesn't even matter what that was about. What I found really quite hysterically funny is that because of all this uh, public pressure on her and her jet-setting lifestyle and all her little, you know, private flights everywhere, despite being a climate virtuoso, she drove to the train station in an electric four-wheel drive, which most of us can't afford, and then caught a train to show that she can slum it with the peasants on her way to the new uh, conference. But of course, it was a special train and she was surrounded by bodyguards. And uh, she was actually wearing a shirt worth more than most of us earn in several months. So uh, her image is actually the funniest part of that story, that they are trying to change the public perception of what they're up to. I uh, don't think it worked, do you? No, I don't think it worked, <laughs> but it was hysterically funny to watch that there's definitely been some recognition that they might be a little bit of a, you know, a pair of hypocrites. It's funny, the harder she tries, the worse she <laughs> makes it for herself. Now, speaking of the, you know, the Australian version, let's talk about Paul Bongiorno. Well, I, well, she should have arrived on a horseback like Joan of Arc. It would have been <laughs> on trend for the Globe Theatre production. <laughs> Are you, call, are you calling her transgender now? Come oh, on. no, I've made a mistake. <laughs> yes. Now, now listen, um, former 10 journalist and prominent leftist in Australia, Paul Bongiorno, made an unkind observation about incoming federal independent MP Di Lee yesterday. Di Lee is the new MP for Fairfield in Western Sydney, which is probably one of Australia's most multicultural electorates. Di Lee herself, who was aged 54, was born in Vietnam and endured years in a refugee camp as a child before arriving in Australia at the age of 11 with her family. Her maiden speech this week included details of the journey that were heartbreaking and frightening. But Bongiorno decided to ruin it all with this tweet, which said, quote, Independent Di Lee mars a gut-wrenching first speech, I think he meant maiden speech, of refugee survival by wearing an Australian flag and like end lockdowns, <laughs> he meant likened lockdowns, to communist suppression, simply appalling, unquote. Alexandra, what happened then? Congratulations for reading over the typos because I struggled that with that when I tried to read it. Uh, so how dare a migrant love Australia? She had this fabulous Union Jack dress on um, and the Australian flag all the way down the centre of it and she looked great. And uh, there's nothing that upsets a lefty journalist more than someone who's patriotic about their country, and she definitely is. And he was most upset that she likened the, uh, the behaviour under COVID to communism, which is a, you know, a comparison made quite often considering it was brutal what happened to Australia. And that really upset him. How dare a, you know, a migrant woman talk about communism? What would she possibly know about a communist system is Paul's answer. And don't worry, he was absolutely rolled through social media because not only did he insult a migrant, he insulted a woman as well, which is not on brand for lefty journalists. <laughs> <laughs> he's really departed from the narrative there. I, I hope he copped it. I, I hope he's gone home feeling sorry for himself. He Alexander. needed to lose a few social credits for that one. <laughs> Alexandra, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. That's Alexandra Marshall, whose brilliant writing can be seen every day on The Spectator Australia's website. And before I go, don't tell Chris Bowen, Anthony Albanese or Dan Andrews, but the brand new Prime Minister of Britain, Liz Truss, has flicked through the political playbook and found a policy that will solve the impending energy crisis facing her nation and ours. She's going to cap power bills until 2024. Hey presto, problem solved or so it will seem for a week or two until the northern winter really kicks in. 
The governments in Canberra and Melbourne probably know that such fiscal magic acts are standard procedure these days, but with the sort of debt we've already racked up, even they know you can't just keep printing money to paper over the cracks in the economy. For a start, this solution to inflation actually causes inflation. The real cause of high energy prices is supply. And unlike her counterparts here, Truss is ready to unlock as much gas as it takes to keep her constituents warm, if not this winter, then at least the next. We wish her every success, if only to show our own politicians that gas is essential to a functioning economy. It's only miserable Greens and their new friends, the Teals, who want people to freeze in the dark to save unborn generations from a climate catastrophe that's been predicted with no accuracy for half a century. If there really is going to be an Armageddon, then it will be caused not by a change in the weather, but by their loopy obsession to drive us all back to the Stone Age. Well, that's all from me tonight. Thanks for your company. Don't forget, Alan Jones is back tomorrow night at 8 p.m. and I'll see you straight after him at nine. Good night.